I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Hey guys, Tim here. Uh, today's guest is David Gray. David is an individual that I have used for some rehab services for myself when I was uh, still trying to figure out some of my hip issues that have plagued me for quite a while. I first came across his content on the Just Fly Sports Performance podcast hosted by Joel Smith. Uh, was really blown away by the depth of his biomechanical knowledge, but also by the seemingly effortless simplicity with which he was able to discuss it without it becoming overly jargony, um, which if you've been listening for a while is something that, you know, Michelle and I tend to find um, sometimes overwhelming with some of the three and four letter acronym treatment systems that are out there. So wanted to have David Gray on to talk a bit more about what he does, as well as to talk about some topics that have been burning in the back of my mind, uh, running with feet out, trying to circle the square of knees out with squatting, how to integrate some of the breathing sensory motor based work with actual output work. And then a little bit at the end about uh, some Instagram strategy and Instagram marketing strategies for rehab professionals. So I I hope you guys uh, really enjoyed this episode. It was a ton of fun talking to David, just an excellent human being. Uh, Before we get going here, let me read a bit from his site. So who is David Gray? David is the CEO of David Gray Rehab. Originally an athlete himself, he was plagued with pain and injuries and became very frustrated with the traditional solutions that were being offered. Deciding to take matters into his own hands, David spent over 10 years traveling the world, learning from some of the best minds in the industry. It became very clear to him that traditional rehab model of isolated stretching and strengthening was a very poor and inefficient way of helping people. David has developed his own unique method of helping people with their pain and movement, and he now works with clients from all walks of life. He regularly rehabs some of the best athletes in the world, has delivered workshops and seminars internationally, and regularly consults with top coaches and therapists to help them get even better results with their own clients. I'm back. Uh, the one thing that I will say before we kick off this episode, his, his product, Lower Body Basics 1, um, I think is an excellent entry point into any clinicians looking to get a little bit more familiar, familiar with this gait and breathing stuff. I think that a lot of times it can be, you know, kind of a large bite to take to go sign up for a six or $700 course um, or a relatively involved mentorship. Uh, so lower body basics one is, is where I recommend a lot of folks start with this. And I, I still use those exercises this day uh, for myself as well as prescribing them to some of my clients. So without further ado, I bring to you David Gray. Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, you need to check out Anchor. Anchor provides the portable space-saving cable trainer that is powering athletes' training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, provides a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit a-N-C-O-R-E training.com and get an exclusive 10% off your Anchor Pro order for being a more train, less pain listener. Enter the code MTLP at checkout and get your Anchor and train without limits today. 
We are live with Mr. David Gray. Mr. Gray, how are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you? <laughs> Doing pretty well. How are things in Ireland? Uh, they would be good if I was there. Where are you these but days? I'm actually, I'm actually, I kind of slipped away to Portugal for a few days. Okay, uh, that seems different. Yeah, yeah so um, haven't announced it on social media or anything like that, but um, <laughs> not, that I, not that I feel like I need to announce it, but um, I... <laughs> Yeah, so basically, I'm working on a uh, on working on a course at the moment, and I just could not get anything done at home, so I just I just left for a for I'm going home back to Portugal tomorrow. I got here on Friday, so like five days type of thing, and got a little bit of work done and a little bit of sunshine at the same time. So it makes the winter a little bit shorter. Yeah, I would imagine the climate's a little bit different in Portugal and Ireland. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was like. We actually had like a nice week's worth of weather in Ireland and I was humming and hawing whether I'd come and then it literally started pissing rain for two days and I just booked my flights and that was it. So, so, uh, yeah, it's nice to, it's nice to look It's a, it's like a two and a half hour flight. So it's, um, easy peasy. My dad has like a share in an, in an apartment here, which is rented for most of the year, but no one seems to be renting it in November. So I said I'd nip out for a little while. Hell yeah. Did you bring the wiener dog with you? What's the we oh no. Roxy? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, it's just me. No Roxy. Okay. Fair enough. But I would I would like to actually. We're we're thinking about getting her little dog passport. So Yeah, um, listen, they travel really well. That's the nice thing about the tiny dogs. <laughs> when we when we went on holidays earlier on in the year, uh we were in we were in the airport and we saw Kira was with me, who was my partner, saw my fiance carrying two like what what you would call wiener dogs through the airport and then she was like oh my god like we could definitely bring this definitely bring roxy on holidays with us <laughs> we uh me and my wife traveled to boston recently and we brought her shiba inu with with us and it's the it's the cutest i mean it looks like a pikachu essentially and so like every child wants to pet this dog but this dog has no time for anybody else like 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 even us like just doesn't tolerate people or other dogs so a kid would get like within 18 inches the mashiba would just kind of like you know startle a little toddler and does that mean you bought the crypto <laughs> i think she was around before i think she she's old enough where uh, she was around before the crypto okay yeah but she yeah, she, yeah we have we have the doge <laughs> yeah um yeah man so that's that's me that's me things in portugal are good things in ireland are also good fair enough so i i want to kind of kick things off and get right into biomechanics because um you are sort of the biomechanics guy and i know we've we've been chatting i mean we've known each other for two or three years at this point but we've chatted a bunch about uh foot turnout during walking and running and i kind of i wanted to wind you up and just kind of let you riff on that so Depending on who you ask, uh, foot turnout is either a normal pattern for walking or running, maybe necessary to achieve full pronation with some body types, or it's the absolute worst thing in the world and will give you diabetes. So there, between those, between those two extremes, um, I guess, I guess riff, riff on why we why we think we see foot turnout in athletes what that might represent and whether or not we do anything about it um so i suppose like it's it's especially with running it's easy to pick on the foot and call something good or bad 
but our like that's a compensation and that's not at the end of the day every single movement we do is a compensation like everything because i have never seen the perfect person moving and i never expect to see the perfect person moving and i don't even know what that would look like so like absolutely everything is a compensation so we have to be careful i think with i I see a lot of people using compensation as a bad thing these days it's it's a really really good thing the ability to be able to compensate um so that i suppose that's the first thing the the second thing is which i kind of touched on there was with regards to the foot like it is easy and anyone can be a running coach on instagram and just take screenshots of someone's foot or or, uh, this has turned out it should be turned in type of thing but like would you say the same about the ha- someone's hand would you look at their where their like their forearm was what their humerus was doing um like is the pelvis rotating equally to the left and the right is the thorax doing that all of those things and the answer is going to be definitely not right it's not it's not going to be symmetrical and oftentimes a foot turnout will be more on one side than the other and i actually have a video on my phone at the moment that i was going to post on instagram over the next few days which is like i have a screenshot of a quite a a, a quite a good athlete with a turned out foot on the floor running versus so i think the left foot is quite turned out and then the right foot is a lot more straight and I was just going to hopefully I'll post it before this episode is released so I won't give it away but like I was going to ask like in the screenshot like what would you do about this turned out foot right here so like would you do intrinsic foot strengthening would you would you strengthen the calf would you just give them a cue to tell them to straighten up their foot um would you work on pronation supination drills in the closed chain would you do foot manipulations would you actually go to that foot that wasn't turned out and try to teach that to pronate more or something so there's a million options but then i'm going to have like a little swipe and the next swipe shows actually the foot is the foot is turning out in the air so long before the foot is hitting the floor that foot is starting to externally rotate or the whole maybe the whole leg is starting to externally rotate so like that kind of throws your foot intrinsic stuff in the bin straight away um, because this is happening in the air um, and it throws a whole lot of stuff in the bin straight away pretty much. So like, does that just bring it back to a, a timing thing and someone is maybe trying to clear the floor because they don't have access to a frontal plane movement at their pelvis, maybe hip lock on the opposite side. So if that, if that, like if I'm on, if I'm kind of in right stance, and I need a hip lock type of movement in right stance, which pushes the left side of my pelvis up higher and allows that left left leg to swing straight through and strike the floor then. If I sink down into my right hip and I don't get a hip lock happening there, is my left pelvis actually lower than my right side when I'm trying to swing my left leg through the air? And so if it can't swing straight through, maybe the whole leg is going to have to externally rotate to clear the floor. It, it, it swings out rather than swinging straight through, maybe as a result of the pelvis not being able to hike up on that left side in that instance. So hopefully I'm painting an okay picture there, but let me know if, I, if that wasn't clear. No, I mean, I think you're, you're painting one in which there's a multitude of variables at play at any given time. And just for the, and I will link 
your post that you referenced in the show notes, I, I assume you'll post it the next day or two. So I'll, I'll dig it out and I'll, I'll put it there. Um, yeah. With the hip lock concept, you're referring to like essentially like a, a late stance mechanic on the right leg, right? Where we're, we're pushing through that right foot and that the ilium on that right side is going to get lower. The ilium on that left side would get higher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's co-contractions all around that right hip and that's that's quite a stable position and it the left side is going to get higher. It it might not be too late. If it's in if it's in acceleration, it's like very it's 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 happening more on toe off um in acceleration mechanics, but in in upright running, it's happening a little bit earlier than that, that hip block position. But yes, that's so, what I'm describing. So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge something that you said kind of in your first sentence of the, the response to this prompt. So, I mean, essentially if, if everything is a compensation, then that means that we don't have perfect movement, but shouldn't we have some ideal, some perfect biomechanical model in our minds that we're continually trying to push individuals towards? And they're, they're kind of like they're asymptotic towards perfection. Um, but I guess in reference to the foot out question, you know, it, it is, is a straight foot, a potential biomechanical hallmark of that biomechanical perfection. Like if everything else is working very, very well, would a straight foot set an athlete up for, for the most success? So I guess two part question there, the, the notion that we should have uh, biomechanical models of perfection and then where would the the foot's position kind of play in a hypothetical biomechanical model of perfection mm -hmm. i think we do need to have a technical model i i wouldn't i wouldn't i just don't use the word perfection really um because we just have like there is bandwidth there obviously depending on who the person is you know and their training history and their the shape of their bones and all of that stuff so there is a there is a bandwidth there. I do think we need to have a technical model. Otherwise, we're just throwing shit at the wall and hoping something sticks. And that's never probably a good thing. So we, we do we do need to have that to work towards. But like if one foot is straight, for instance, and I'll try and get to your second part. So if one foot as well, if, if one foot is straight and one foot is turned out, does that mean then that we say that the turned out foot is the bad foot? If the straight foot is if the straight foot is like in the ideal technical model, let's say, and the turned out foot is not, then does that if someone runs with one foot turned out and one foot straight, does that mean that the bad that's the bad side? Probably according to that model, but I I, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, well, that's a good. It's it's. I don't have the right answer there. I'm asking the question, but if that's the bad side, like. Does, and and maybe that's starting to be caused from the pelvis. Like, is that right side of the pelvis then the bad side also, or is that the that right shoulder the bad side also? So, like, the the answer is obviously it depends, which isn't a good answer for a podcast, but it does it does depend. But I think it comes back to: Do they have the? Is the turning out their only option? And if it is their only option, then I would like to be able to give them another option. And often the turning out is their only option for a few reasons. One reason is they actually can't pronate their foot very well and they need to externally rotate the, maybe the, the tibia 
um, the lower leg, maybe the whole leg, so that they can actually, it won't, it won't be as clean a pronation, but they'll probably just evert the whole foot in that instance to be able to get into that inside arch and get some push from there. Um, that, that might be one reason. The hip lock thing that I spoke about earlier might be another reason. Um, like the, the sagittal plane might be just kind of a bit messed up with regards to the ribs and stuff like that. That might be another reason, but that's a whole body thing and that's a timing thing. So if they only have one option to turn out the foot, that's not such a good thing. If I see them doing lots of things and they have the ability to be able to do lots of things, but their body still chooses to do this thing, then I'm probably not as concerned. So I want to give them options rather than rules. And I think that's the, that's the important point I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to make rules. You have to look like this, but I do want them to be, have the ability to look like that if their body chooses to organize like that. This might dovetail into another topic that I was hoping to cover with you. In that case, let's take the example of right foot straight, left foot turnout, and you're working with a client virtually. What sort of things would be incredibly high up in the order of operations for you to assess? And let's say they're coming to you with a complaint of pain and, and you observe this foot orientation. Mm -hmm. Is the pain on the, which foot is the pain on? Let's say it's left hip pain. Left hip pain. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm probably like you in that regard where I often, I often look at the pelvis. Like I, I look at the, I look at, I assess someone, I look at the whole body regardless of, I, I'm not particularly, I'm interested in symptoms, but I'm not like obsessed with the symptoms either. I just want to see what their whole body does. And so like, I want to see, do you have, all of these movements available. So can you adduct, abduct, flex, extend, IRER? And if the answer is no, like I'll help them get that back. Um, if it's an Achilles issue, I'll definitely be much more likely to go straight to the foot and clean that up. And I'll usually just clean that up with some simple pronation, supination drills, the most simple things ever. Um, and I want to make, see how big improvements I can make with someone by doing like the least thing possible, the smallest change that I can make that might yield the biggest improvement for two reasons. One, it's efficient. I don't have to change much else about their training. I don't have to think too much about it. They don't have to think too much about it. And two is it builds, it builds a lot of buy-in if you can do something small and make big changes. And actually there's a third, which is the biggest reason, um, which is I've saved all my maybe bigger guns for later on, especially with an Achilles issue. So like someone will often go and say, right, you have an Achilles issue now, seven days a week, you should do calf raises and seated calf raises, standing calf raises. And what happens if that doesn't work? Like it's very hard for me to then go back and say, actually, we just need to do this small little foot drill and clean, clean up your foot after we've thrown so much load and volume at them and, and these, these exercises. So I'll clean up the smallest or the clean up, like the Dan path talks about clean up the biggest virus in the room. Like what's the biggest virus that you can see, clean that up and then see what's left. So I don't know if does that answer your question, but I don't, I don't have like an order of operations really. It's just what I can, smallest thing I can do really to make a biggest change. Okay. And, and I like that. So I guess, this has been something I've been fairly enamored with for, I don't know, probably the, the better part of a decade and a half since I started to analyze my own running when I was an athlete in college. Um, but it seems like with 
running and walking that the foot turnout isn't so much of a problem so long as you're accomplishing other hallmarks of biomechanically efficient and effective running. However, I'm specifically thinking about like more unilateral gym type movements, like a lunge or a step up where even a slight foot turnout can, can pose enormous problems in an athlete's ability to execute that lift. So is it fair to say that in certain movement archetypes that that straight foot may be far more important and that might be a strategy that we use to improve movement, general movement variability so that the gym stuff looks better and perhaps that carries over into the sprinting, the running, the walking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, look, I guess I'm being a bit of a contrarian there, but like I ultimately you will very rarely hear me telling someone to turn their foot out and you will more often tell me to hear like just cueing someone to just straighten up their foot a little bit so like yes like i'm i i i I agree with that and that's that's not because i think a straight foot is is better or, or like perfect or anything like that it's just that i think if we can give them that option to train in that way like they're going to move through probably more range of motion as a result of having the straight foot because they have more access maybe to ir and er from there rather than pushing out into er to try and find some ir from there so that like that's why i'm trying to help them find more range of motion and also probably just expose them to a position where they don't really like and they're not they don't really get to so i'm trying to get them to feel that and then maybe they'll organize in that way um so yes I, I i would i would agree with that i do turn out the foot sometimes if it's a super rigid foot and i actually need to encourage some pronation then i might turn out the foot not necessarily in lifts or anything like that just in like a, a pronation drill i might actually er them and give it give them that pronation back or some kind of eversion or whatever it might be and then slowly over time i might kind of kind of straighten it up and say right, you can now get some weight to come into the inside of the foot without completely everting everything. And can you now get that in a more subtle and a more subtle and a more subtle way as, as the foot starts to look straighter? And that can be with the pelvis as well. Let's say you're doing a pronation drill, like the easiest way to get someone to get towards the inside of the foot is if you, if you just straighten up the foot or even turn out, let's say it's a right foot, they're in a small split stand, straighten it up, or turn it out a little bit and then I just turn rotate my pelvis to the left completely which is going to internally rotate the right femur and internally rotate the right tibia all with it and it's going to kind of pull some weight into the inside of the foot and I can just move forward and turn the pelvis that way so if I need to do that I'll make the movement much bigger and then when they start to feel that like get that awareness of the weight moving in there I might say now from here we're going to actually try and get that to happen without getting that big massive movement at the pelvis and all of this stuff so make it go from big to little rather than or sometimes you might want to do the opposite which is start really small just get some small movement to the foot and now look at the whole the whole body as a result yeah i like that i really like something that you said earlier on in that response that um the straight foot or the slightly turned out foot giving the individual the big the most opportunity the best opportunity for experiencing full external and internal rotation and i think that would be a really nice justification for why individuals might turn one foot or both feet out with running is because movement limitations maybe ways they're built won't allow them to experience that nice er to ir to er that we're that we're looking for 
And I think um, one of the clients that I'm managing now, pretty high level trail runner, but actually has this presentation, like the right foot slightly turned out, the left foot substantially turned out. And the solution that we've come to is the gym stuff, especially like the, the split stance position stuff or the step up stuff. We really try to bias a straight foot and we're not pushing load, but we're just trying to feel and experience that position. And then if he's doing some aggressive hiking or some running things where we're, you know, going left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, a little bit more subconscious, which kind of just let his body self-organize. And it does seem like it consistently chooses that left foot out, right foot straight position. Um, however, I, you know, I, as his coach have deemed it, like, it's probably not a problem. If it's a problem, we just want to make sure that you can do the other things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think you're being like, I, I, I'm with you on that. And I think people are being a little bit silly with regards to like, how, like, if you were to start to cue him to run with his feet turned turned in, you're not actually giving him more options, you're giving him much less options then because in a few different ways, one, it's becoming like a conscious cue when running is not a conscious movement, particularly with like what I'm doing with my feet. So now timing is completely messed up. It's, it's, it's akin to someone using the cue of, which I hear all the time, which is like, squeeze your glutes when you run, which is like... <laughs> when should I squeeze them? <laughs> what exact moment in the gate cycle should I get that squeeze to happen? Um, but I see a lot of people who have been doing that and a lot of people who have been coaching that, which is just shows a complete ignorance towards the dynamic system of the human body. Um, and then what was, what was I saying there? So yeah, you're, you're taking away options because they might not have that internal rotation. And now you're actually turning them into internal rotation when they run maybe straightening things up so now they don't have internal rotation and they probably don't have much external rotation because they're fighting it by trying to keep their leg in so they're just kind of jammed into a position so that's when like that's that's what i mean about the foot turning out and stuff we it as soon as that becomes a conscious thing when speed of movement has increased like you've 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 done the wrong thing you've lost at that stage it needs to be cleaned up maybe in the gym or maybe in small, simple, like whatever drills. But if the body isn't choosing it, then you're, you, you do certainly have no business to start to choose it for them. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I, I was certainly exposed to a lot of this straight foot stuff in the like mid to late aughts by a certain physical therapist who also popularized this concept of knees out for squatting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a discussion for a different day. But I mean, I, I do think that there's some analogies, some similarities to be made between the straight foot position and the knees out position. They're, they're both visually obvious to perceive a lack of or see that someone's doing that. And yet they're both incredibly complicated because in that, in that squat case, uh, turning a person's knees out doesn't really respect what they're bringing to the table at the pelvis in regards to the squat. So you don't know if you're dealing with internally rotated iliums or already externally rotated iliums. Like you don't know what the reason that they're trying to drive their knees in is. So I'm I'm right there with you, giving them a conscious cue to rob them of the strategy that they've been using to successfully complete the task doesn't seem a particularly effective strategy, or at least not one that has a high probability of, of working. Yeah. And it just, it just disrespects, I think, like it does a few things. As soon as you start to cue, I think 
a lot of like ER or IR at the knees or a lot of what should be happening or a lot of what's happening at the feet when you're doing a, a something like a squat. Again, I think you've lost already. Like I think a squat is like sit down and come back up again. And, and that's it. Like bend your knees, sit down and come back up. And then the constraints that you place on that with regards to where you place the load or if you use what kind of shoes they're in or like a slant board or all of these things or what their body's constraints, what they have access to, they will dictate how they do that. So like a cue for knees out just disrespects the, the complexity of the body, I think, because like... If you, if you think that you need to chase that external rotation and it's it, you're not getting some of that external rotation by just bending your knees and letting the femurs move, like the, the, the head of the femur move in the acetabulum when I actually just bend, come back down and up, like that is happening for us anyway. I don't need to cue that. It's just, I just need to put the right constraints in place. Yeah, well said. And I think there's a the degrees of freedom are probably the the op, is probably the operative uh, operative phrase here because with something like a bilateral squat or a deadlift or a run, like those are fairly output driven activities where I would think that we would want degrees of freedom maximized so that a person can choose the best movement strategy possible, the best compensatory strategy possible. When we start to impose these, like you said, conscious cues, we're intentionally restricting degrees of freedom. And that that most of the time, at least in my seven years of doing this physical therapy thing, seems to be a bad thing. Unless you're a powerlifter. Sure. Yeah, that's where it comes, that's where it's come from. Like they they want the least amount of variability possible if they have a one RM thing on uh, bar on their back and they pretty much just want to go down and up and like the that's where there's that's why they brace so hard as well like they don't want any movement at their spine they don't want any available anything really you know i, I think i think that's i think that's where them a lot of them cues have come from where it's screw your feet into the floor so straight away like grip grip in with your toes and all that stuff so now i've locked the foot in there's no movement jam your knees out into end range no movement left in 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 the in the transverse plane really um and then just sit down to to some kind of depth and back up again and and brace as hard as possible so they are tr actively trying to freeze degrees of freedom now there is a case to say that like if you just have a barbell heavy barbell on your back your body will kind of just do that as you go down and up anyway yeah and i, I my comment in that situation would sort of be the the bracing would be the thing that ought to happen fairly naturally like the bracing is a thing that you see as a commonality with high level power lifters. I, I wonder, and I, I'm not someone that works with a ton of high level power lifters. I, I work with some pretty decent CrossFitters and they're fairly strong, but you know, they're not deadlifting 900 pounds or anything. Um, it seems to me that it's not a commonality with high level power, high level power lifters to do the knees out thing or the screw the feet out thing. It is, it is what mm -hmm. some of them do, but it's certainly not a hallmark of successfully completing that lift and uh, you know re like really hoisting that, where, impressive I poundage think it, i think that's where it's come from though sure that that that's the that's the idea is to just literally lock yourself in as hard as possible and go down and up again and i think that's where like if you see susie in the in the gym who's lifting a six kilo kettlebell and like she's doing that driving her knees out like 
some coach has told her to do that because they saw some other coach doing that. Because I don't think I've ever seen someone choose that movement strategy if you just ask them to do a squat. Like, does someone sit on the toilet by driving their knees out as far as possible? I don't think I've ever seen. Well, I haven't seen many people sitting on toilets, but I, I certainly don't do that. But when I first started lifting, I didn't sit on the toilet like that. I didn't sit on a chair like that. I didn't squat down when I was doing anything else like that. But I was told you need to keep push your knees out like and further, further was better in, from most of the people that I was listening to. Yeah. And what I really like about a lot of the content that you put out is a lot of it is trying to feel what your body does naturally when you move in certain positions, when you move in certain directions. And in the case of a deadlift or a squat or even a run, when you push, when you put force into the ground, when you're pushing into the ground, like that's, that's an internal rotation. That's a pronation type of movement. So to think that you're going to be at your strongest when you're consciously trying to do the opposite of the thing that your body wants to do when it's pushing. It seems, seems a little silly. Certainly doesn't feel like, you know, what my body wants to do when I'm trap bar deadlifting or anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You're bang on. So yeah, it's, it's how much degrees of freedom I suppose you want to, you want to maybe take away or give people access to. And in my world, it's usually giving them access to, it's 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 making sure they have access to those things and then it's up to their nervous system to like take away take away like they're they're getting rid of options as they go and move and the body is choosing the most efficient option rather than me trying to be smarter than the nervous system which is is literally impossible and you're a pretty smart guy I don't know about that, but, um, but yeah, so that's, look, it's just conscious, that conscious cueing stuff. I think we're starting to get away from a lot of that, especially when it comes to high speed movement. If you're still giving a lot of cues at that stage, uh, like that's, that's, that's not where you want to be going. I could not have asked for a more perfect segue into the next topic that I want to dive into with you. So uh, for people that have followed your work on Instagram or maybe experimented with lower body basics one or two, a lot of the drills that you give are fairly like low level motor control, more, more positionally oriented things that would, would definitely not fall in the output side of the exercise continuum. Like they're very, they're very inward focused. They're very feel your body do this thing. I'm curious if you were training an athlete that was highly output oriented, you know, someone that wanted to put on some muscle or run faster or deadlift more weight, but also was working through some chronic injuries and you're designing their training program in totality. Like you have, you completely have the wheel. How do you integrate those lower level drills with more like higher end output driven, you know, not sensory motor based ones. Mm -hmm. So not, so not rehab late stage rehab potentially because okay. rehab is simple rehab is about getting a person to the next stage of rehab pretty simple and like i can fill in the training session however i want to fill it in but the main thing is like if they're if they're if their end stage is someone who just wants to run and they're now lunging and they had like they had a knee it's a knee rehab like next step is probably going to be some hopping or something like that 
Like, so my only job really is to get them to the next stage there. So that's easy peasy. Um, it's just, it's just knowing, it's just knowing your progressions and knowing and being, and, no, and be, having a good enough eye to see when someone is ready and like being smart enough to almost sprinkle it in and have them nearly tell you when they think they're ready for, for that. Uh, they're nearly begging you like, yep, let's, re- let's, let's move on. That's where I have like the little wall pogos and stuff like that. Like I'm almost giving them the drill that they're going to do before they do it. Um, so as soon as they go into that drill, they're like, oh, we've kind of done this already. So, and that's, some people think, I know this is a segue, but some people think that's a way of like, like messing around with low level drills and you're you're slowing people down you should be just getting them hopping like into a hopping a pogo drill or something like that in standing i'm actually getting them into a pogo drill much sooner than most people are getting a standing pogo drill much sooner than people are getting other people are getting people into standing pogo drills it i'm using the like the wall pogos on the floor and stuff like that as a way of of like almost clearing them to do that work and so it's, it's there's less there's less risk involved and you were building confidence and we're doing things much quicker so like them low level drills are a way of getting people into higher level drills much quicker i think that's where people get confused where they're like oh you're doing low level work and like low level is also really subjective like really subjective because Again, if, if I have like a professional athlete at the moment and they're in season and they're training har- as hard as possible, like maybe a hip shift movement, a simple hip shift movement or something like that is exactly what they need. And maybe it's exactly the thing that they can't really do at the moment. Their body isn't able to do it. And I, like, it's not, I don't know if low level is the right term to put on it but anyway in general so let's say i'm i'll use i'll use um a girl i'm working with at the moment so kate field she's a she's a race walker she was a junior race work race walking world champion and she was kind of going to she was she was kind of touted as one of the next big things and uh, irish olympic hopeful and all of this stuff and we don't have many olympic medal hopefuls in ireland so um so we're we're working together at the moment and she she kind of she had a lot of injuries along the way and stuff so we're trying to kind of rebuild her and keep her healthy she needs to do a lot of that work that like sensory work feeling her body um just getting things moving in different ways. She needs a lot of that work. Her body is literally crying out for that work because it's, I, I'm, I'm actually trying to be as unsport specific as possible when I work with her. So if you think of a better race walker, like they kind of land on an extended knee and they're trying to extend their knee further and, and they're just, it's all like extension. And then they get a ton of like hikes and drops of the pelvis and side bends and stuff like that. So anytime we hip shift to the side, you're not allowed hike anytime you're doing a step up a squat uh anything else you're trying to delay knee extension for as long as possible so it's as unsport specific as possible so we're almost like we almost segue a training session where we start we do do a little bit of breathing work on the floor because her body needs it so we're doing we're doing some hamstring work on the floor breathing we're we're getting her up i usually get her onto the the bike, like the airdyne bike, arms and legs going, nasal breathing for a couple of minutes. So our heart rate is get, is coming up a little bit, um, and she's getting some like really nice alternation through through the upper limbs and all of that stuff. 
um i'll get her on the ski org i put up a video of that recently where she was like the chop. yeah the chop yeah, so yeah, I just yeah, get yeah. Her love that five minutes like and she's only allowed chop back into her left hip her left hip is the is a problem area so she does like three to five minutes there she can choose whether she goes nasal breathing or, or nose mouth, um, depending on how fa- how hard she wants to go. So I might go either bike or the ski org or a little bit of boat sometimes if she's quite stiff and sore because she could have done 20 to 30 miles the previous day of walking um, at a very fast pace. So, so some of that, some hamstring work on the floor. Um, and at the moment then we're doing like some light slant board squats and simple like frontal plane just side to side shifts because i need to i need to try and teach her pelvis to go side to side without like going straight up hiking straight up in the sky straight away and then the rest of the session then is at the moment we're working on some step ups where she just keep tries to keep her knee her shin angle forward for as long as possible um so no no knee extension as you come up or very little as you come up um and yeah so that's that's and we kind of alternate between the side to side shifts the slant board work and then the the step up work so it's not answering your question in terms of the output stuff because we're actually not quite there with her yet and i have three years with her to get her right for for an olympics so i'm not trying to i'm not trying to rush it um but to answer your question when we are there with her for that her warm-up type of stuff will still probably look like some of that um maybe a little bit more complex and then she'll be just going into some of whatever we need like if it's trap bar or like a heavier safety bar squat or anything like that so her warm-up will still probably probably look like that i think the mistake that some people make or fall into is they do they're doing neither where the athlete is not getting enough of what they need in terms of if you want to call it low level work where they're trying to make their deadlift a hip shift exercise and there's not really enough load to strengthen anything there's not really and they're not really doing it well enough to get the into the movement you want and the athlete is like I can't, yeah, I think I might feel what you mean, but not really. And they never improve. So I would actually rather do some of the low level work, like lying on their back. I don't mind that. I have no problem with that. If they do it really well and we get exactly what we want from it and then go straight into the other stuff and, and push them as hard as possible if we need to then. Whereas I think, I, I, I think it's kind of become an Instagram, like, battle for who can come up with the fanciest exercise where i'm actually trying to get every single thing from one exercise and actually in reality if you really look at it you're not getting anything from it yeah i I love that i think back to a conversation i had with uh, mike camperini who kind of comes from the bill hartman tree of, of physical therapists and he was he was remembering his time as a student with bill and said that when when it was time for, and again, I, I agree with you, I could probably take issue with the term low level drill, but the more sensory motor oriented drills, the heaviest weight they would ever use is a 25 pound dumbbell. Like it, it never got heavier than that when the focus was on moving the body in a particular way. So I'm right there with you when I, when I see people doing like, um, like the Camperini deadlift, like the staggered stance, retro deadlift with a, with a load, either in the contralateral hand or the ipsilateral hand with like a 75 pound dumbbell. 
I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of like two stones, no birds, right? It's, it's probably not doing the movement thing that you want. And it probably isn't enough load to do the train, the fitness thing that you want. And I guess that's where I was kind of going with this line of thinking. So it sounds like in a, in a hypothetical situation, you would give a person what they need from a movement standpoint in the warmup, where I would assume your KPIs there would be how a person feels, how they can tolerate the training outside of the weight room, maybe, maybe table tests, something like that. And then you would go into something more output driven, like a trap bar deadlift, where I would assume that you'd be less picky on the execution of that lift. And then would you bookend that session with, with more of the first category of activities? Yeah. I might just give them like you, you here, you can pick one drill out of these 10 now to finish off with and like, just, just leave the gym literally feeling, feeling a bit better, less kind of crappy. So I I think that's really, really important. And I actually even think that can be, that can come in the, in the, in the way of like a completely novel stimulus that a lot of people trash where it could be literally balancing on a PVC pipe or like, you know, like, like closing my eyes and, and jumping on the spot and shaking or something like that. It's just kind of, it's almost a way of just like, just trying to retrain or not retrain, but like get some little reflexes happening in the body. Again, things, things just kind of light switches flicking on where I'm just focusing on something that isn't like maximal strength. And and I just feel a bit Okay, are not so nice after especially if it's an athlete who needs to go and run or train the next day i think that's important to finish with that and i also think like rest periods are really good so like if it is if it is some heavier work like i i would rather an athlete didn't just sit down in between the sets even if it is heavy and it smokes them like a little bit but just have a walk around the room and breathe through your nose and like that's not me like saying breathe in this way it's just like close your mouth just trick them into doing it in terms of it's it's recovery or like you know throw a throw a light like so light that there's no weight in it like medicine ball to them over and back just while you're having a chat between if you need a minute warm um rest in between sets or something like that so that's a really nice i think i think that stuff is so so underrated and it's it's because it's it is hard to measure and it is like it doesn't look fancy, but like just even getting someone just shifting side to side in a standing drill in between a trap bar deadlift, like just, just keep reinforcing that. Like you don't have to be stuck in that position all the time, get your body moving as much as you can throughout the session. Even if the focus on of the session is not on like movement variability, let's say. Yeah. I, I love that. Two things. One, our mutual friend, uh, Joel Smith over at just fly would be very, very proud that you just mentioned the the balancing on the PVC pipe. And I was a big mm-hmm. fan of that stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. and two, I, I, I just, I love that notion. I think to a training session I had with an athlete a couple of weeks ago, and we finished with five minutes of juggling a soccer ball against a wall, just, yeah. just to get out of that. Like we're trying really, really hard. We're straining, we're breath holding kind of pattern. And I think that's, that's so incredibly important after, as we're saying, like the more output-oriented types of things. Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, Anchor provides the portable space-saving cable trainer that is powering athletes' training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, 
is assembled in the USA and delivers a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit ancoretraining.com and get 10% off your Anchor Pro order when you use the code MTLP at checkout. Anchor, train without limits. Yeah, we're putting up a basketball hoop in our gym at the moment and like, I just want I just want to be able to, well, for me mostly, <laughs> but I want to, uh, like if, if, if an athlete is there, like, just just take three or four shots like at the end of a session or between a set or something like that like that it's hard to measure but that can make a session so much more enjoyable and like i don't think people realize that that how much that the state that the athlete is in like if they're enjoying their training like how much of a benefit that's going to be especially if it's an athlete that you're going to be working with for several years like i'm probably hopefully going to be working with kate for the next three years and she's going to be coming down to me at least once a week for three years like if that gets stale and boring and and we're doing a breathing drill on the floor every time which we probably will be and i know that's taboo to say at the moment like oh you get away from them breathing drills she she'll come in and her body will be really sore and she'll be stressed and there's something going on with the training plan that didn't quite fit or whatever like damn right we're going to spend a minute doing some some breathing work on the floor i'm not afraid or ashamed to say that i know some people are fighting so hard against that it's when you never progress them on from that that's where the problem is yeah that certainly makes sense to me and so in this situation with uh, kate the athlete the race walking athlete that you're managing when you do get her doing something like a trap bar deadlift how are you going to Reconcile is the wrong word, but you know, you have these, these movement KPIs that you're trying to move forward with uh, the breathing based stuff, the position based stuff, the five minutes of chopping on the skier. And then you have more of these like leg strength deadlift type numbers that you're trying to progress. How are you going to get those two to, to play nice? Are you going to cap her at a certain strength level? Or are you going to get her as strong as possible without losing some of the movement KPIs? How do you think about that? So for her, like, her her movement is way her she's actually strong she's strong she's been strong for a long time now and some of some of that again it might be taboo to say like some of her past training like focusing on more strength is better has has been part of what's gotten her in trouble already in the past um it it has like there is no doubt about that and we are dealing with a structure now a hip that is not going to regain like it's full it's full range of motion um and that that that's fine i think it's fine i think i i don't think it's that big a deal we will we'll be able to manage it um it's it's just that for her her movement like retaining those movement options that she needs for her sport is so important and the, the thing that she needs for her sport like losing losing a tiny bit of motion in her hip could be a big deal for her and will definitely be a big deal for her. she might not she will she will notice it that day when she trains other people wouldn't notice it because her form like is is good in really good in terms of race walking form but she she would notice it in terms of how she feels but she would definitely notice it the following day so i don't have a number in mind but i do have tests in mind that like 
it's as soon as I see that starting to approach, we're, we're actually losing range of motion here. I know for this athlete, I know we've gone, we've gone too far. And I think we can get quite far and, and get quite strong without getting to that stage. I think we can really, 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 but like strength is also subjective in terms of like, when we get our shifting into a certain position, like, or a lot of people shifting into a certain position, like our muscles are freaking out. Like, you know, there is, there is the trembling. Uh, there is a lot of things going on there. So like, it's, it's just, you're not strong in this position, maybe. So we're going to get very strong in a lot of different positions, but I will not sacrifice for this athlete. I will not sacrifice movement options for, for more strength. Okay. That, yeah, fantastic. That's, that's kind of exactly the statement I was looking to get at here. So it sounds like you would always rather live in a place where maybe she's not as weight room strong as she possibly could be, but her movement looks good. It feels good to her and whatever objective KPIs you're tracking are satisfactory. Correct. Yeah. 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 And that could like, look, sometimes you can sacrifice that like with a Gaelic footballer or a hurler or Irish sports, like a lot of athletes do sacrifice that. They do, um, and they get better. They get better at the sport for for the short term, at least. It's just that careers are getting shorter and shorter now. So um, much, much shorter in a lot of cases, but like they are getting to a higher level for a shorter amount of time. I think now some of that is the demands of the sport in terms of like train. Just the games are getting harder. Training is getting harder as well outside the weight room. Um, of course it is, but like they are, they, they can afford to lose maybe some range of motion and gain, gain in other aspects. And they probably need to now if they're going to play at the highest level. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's not like I'm always like, Oh, you need to keep your mobility type of thing. Like I understand, I understand the other, other side of it. Um, I think people are just too quick to maybe sacrifice it. And I think some athletes will suffer a lot more than other athletes. Some athletes will lose it so quickly and it can be very hard. Like it's, if you have someone with all the range of motion they need and like good motor control and all of that stuff, you can strengthen them. No problem. And they'll get as strong as you need them to get. If you get an if you get someone and you know this team and most people know this, if you get someone in coming into you, and like structurally, they've gotten to a point where they are going to struggle now to hit positions and all of that stuff. Like that is a hard case to manage now. So like we do, we do want to make people as strong as possible, but not, you can sacrifice certain things, but not, but only up to a certain point. Yeah. And I think, and I, Michelle and I were, were talking about, this is probably going to be the first episode of our second season, or at least one of the early ones. But I think one of the big themes is going to be this interplay between getting people like output strong, getting people strong in the weight room and getting them to feel better, getting them to improve range of motion outcomes. Cause it, it does seem like the two can potentially play nice, but at a certain point they're going to diverge. And I think like you said, that point is going to be different for each individual. And it's going to be fairly different depending on what sport or what activity that individual is trying to do. I mean, in, in my own practice, I deal with a lot of CrossFitters and it's like, you, you, you really can't tell CrossFitters to sub in 15 pound dumbbells for a lot of barbell based movements. Like that doesn't, that doesn't go over well. So it becomes like, all right, what, what concessions are they comfortable making to their own training and how much supplemental work are they willing to add in to try to get some of these movement outcomes? 
And it's, it's a, it's a lot tougher than, I think it's a lot tougher than the situation that you described with the race walker where, yeah, I mean, she, she, she's not really going to put up too much of a fight. If you do all these drills that just get her to feel better. And then she can go walk 20 miles the next day. Mm-hmm. She would have in the past, uh, but not anymore. Yeah. Not and I just, I, I mean, it's, I think they can, they can definitely coexist. You can get, you can get like lower body basics. I don't want it to sound like I'm plugging it. I'm not. But like that, that is proof of that. And that was like this, a simple program that I just wrote uh, so simply. And there's literally thousands of people that have, including Olympic athletes, by the way, and including professional athletes in the NBA and in Premier League soccer, who will be are very adamant that they got better at their sport, significantly better at their sport in terms of how they feel, cleaning up injuries. I got stronger in the weight room by doing some of that work. And it's not that we it's not that we like drove their output through the roof. It's just that they probably feel better and they can their nervous system is happy to just say, yeah, here's a little bit more. You feel better. You're not feeling like absolute dog shit playing your game or going into the gym. Here's a little bit more. Off you go. I trust you. And I, I think what it comes down to again is, is, is the degrees of freedom concept. I think one of the one of the things I really specifically love about lower body basics is they're they're really, really easy, very again, I'm not trying to use the phrase low level, but low force drills. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity to expand an athlete's movement repertoire doing those is going to be way, way higher than even even something like a Camperini deadlift with a 25-pound dumbbell where you're going to have to do things in a particular way to not fall on your face and to successfully accomplish that task. So that makes a lot of sense in my mind and, and probably is, is, a, is kind of further proof that maybe the best way to do things is make these low force drills particularly good at hitting movement outcomes and then let the high force things be just dumb, self-organized, try hard, get an adaptation. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I, I, I've started a podcast, by the way, I haven't released any yet, but I oh, had, uh, the only reason I mentioned it is because um, I interviewed Graham Morris, who's a strength and conditioning coach in Australia the other day. And like, he has gone from, he's gone into this kind of gait and respiration world from, he just bought lower body basics. Again, not killing, not plugging it, but he bought that. And then he kind of like, that was his intro into it. And then he was like, oh, I, I feel good. I just don't know why this works. So he's kind of gone down the rabbit hole anyway. But his, I think his, um, his issue with some of the, the stuff is that, it, like exactly like we said earlier, where there was no, when you try and merge the worlds together, where I'm trying to look at, like trying to get output and force and then, some kind of fancy exercise at the same time and I end up with nothing like he I think that's where he he felt like people were going wrong it was like you you need to have a very clear divide between like sensory motor work and then your intensity work and I don't think people have a clear enough divide and they end up doing something in the middle and then I could ask them show me uh like a hip shift exercise line on your back and they can't do it. Not a hope in hell they can do it, but they're trying to do a hip shift in standing with a 75 pound dumbbell. And like, you're not getting stronger and you're not getting your hip to shift in this position. And that clear, you need to be very clear, I think, with your divide. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think, you know, people love to form into little factions and there's this whole just get stronger faction in at least 
here in America with physical therapy, where the, the problem is that everybody, we suffer from an epidemic of weakness and we just need to improve our squat deadlift and all those numbers and things will get better. And then there's there's another issue of everybody needs to be doing these sensory motor drills pretty much to the exclusion of these output drills. And I think one of the more encouraging trends in physical therapy and strength conditioning is you're starting to see training programs that are not blending both by bastardizing each, but including both and, and trying to track these output outcomes and movement outcomes. And I think that's really, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Yeah. And you know where you learn that? Uh, I think the, the, I think re, like the world of rehab and, and physio and all of that stuff has way more to learn from the world of SNC than the other way around. So this isn't a this isn't a dig at an SNC or anything like that. But I think where you learn that very clearly is in the rehab world because if someone has a goal, especially a professional athlete or not a professional athlete, like just an athlete, let's say who got injured and wants to get back to playing a sport or whatever, they don't have to be a professional or running or whatever. If you're not progressing them back towards their goal, then you are not doing your job. And it's as simple as that. If you have a, if you, let's say it is a professional athlete who's on a lot of money, earns a lot of money. If they are not getting back to the sport, then you're not doing your job. So if you stay at a sensory motor drill forever, you, you are not doing your job and either they one they won't get back or two they'll get back and they will get injured very quickly again two if you do just get stronger work then that might work unless it doesn't work and so like now i'm still in pain i'm still injured or else i get back and i i get injured again so there's two outcomes where the athlete has got injured again. Now, with any rehab process, anyone could get injured again because we are not gods and we're not in control of everything. But what I'm trying to say is, if you don't learn a blended approach and, and try to progress someone through the rehab process, then if you don't do that well, you will be found out very, very, very quickly, especially with a professional athlete, because they will fire your ass on the spot, especially if they have outsourced it, where like they're not getting that from their club or their organization. They've come to you privately. If they don't progress every few weeks on to something else, you're gone. Basically, you are gone. So like coaches, I think, miss out on that because they are coaching they are coaching healthy athletes a lot of the time. Now, now, don't get me wrong. A lot of coaches are doing a brilliant job rehabbing and and um, working with athletes in pain, but they are doing just get stronger work with someone who has no real goal that they're trying to progress back to. And so, if you did have someone that had that just bust their knee or like really bad Achilles or something like that, you learn that some of the other work works because it does work and it helps me progress on to the next stage and I will do whatever I can. I don't give a crap what it is. If it helps me progress someone on to the next stage of rehab, I'll do it. I could not give a shit what it was. I'm just wondering if there's a coach out there who has, who had at one time a bunch of people with knee pain and he, he increased their back squat from like 95 to 225 and all their knee pain went away collectively. Like that seems like the most bananas insane thing that I could, that like that wouldn't happen. <laughs> It could, it could knees over toes guy, maybe. But then, then again, I think the rumor is that like 50% of the people get, get 
better and like 50% actually get way worse knee pain. <laughs> so well successful so, yeah. market successful marketing is giving a giving a microphone and a, a you know bullhorn to the people that do get better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, and look, I do that as well. Don't get me wrong. Like of course, like we are all biased to share brilliant results, but I don't I don't block people who write on my page saying that didn't work. <laughs> But actually, I didn't even want that. To, I shouldn't, like, I actually really like a lot of that work. It's just that basically no one thing works for everyone. That's like, you have to be open-minded, you know? Yeah, very well said. Uh, we are coming up on time here, Mr. David Gray. Uh, tell the, or before we tell the people where they can find out more about you and your products, any uh, any closing comments, any summative thoughts based on the discussion we've had this morning? No. <laughs> Okay. None. Um, I do have a question. No, I do have a question for you, Tim. Sure. If I'm allowed to do that. But the reason is, so you just- Are you're you practicing just your podcast hosting? No, my podcast hosting is really bad. Like I actually really, because I find this really easy in a lot of ways. Doesn't mean I'm actually good at it, but I find like a conversation with you really easy. But then when I realized I had to be the ones asking the questions, I found it, I found it not so easy. <laughs> So my podcast could absolutely tank, but, um, <laughs> but you, you said one of the topics you, you thought you wanted to discuss, like you just gave me a very brief, like, here's a couple of topics, but one was why did I think my, my like Instagram success, quote unquote, went like 20 X by the, from when I knew you to, to now and I don't, I don't have the perfect answer there. I don't know, but I would like to, I would have liked to have heard your take on that from looking from the outside. Sure. And I mean, I, I, I really do think that did happen. I think the first time that you and I talked was 2018 or 2019. And, you know, now we're sitting here towards the end of 2021 and seems like you're, I mean, you're, you're certainly on a ton of podcasts, certainly have a lot of followers, certainly seems like things are going in the right direction for you. Um, which makes me happy because I think you're kind of one of the good ones. I think you're trying to put content out there that is different and informative and not just marketing for the sake of marketing. I think the way that I phrase that question for you, which is something I stole from um, Tim Ferriss, a podcaster I, who I really, really like, is what, what itch do you think you scratch in a unique way? And I think for a lot of and I'm speaking specifically for physical therapists trained in America because, you know, I feel qualified to speak on that front. Um, a lot of what we're taught in school doesn't make a whole ton of sense insofar as why people get injured or refuse to, to get healthy after prolonged bouts of injury. I think we get a lot of, um, you know, your, your knee is still in pain because your VMO lacks sufficient strength. Um, this person with femoracetabular impingements hip is still flared up because their glute medius tests weak. And I, I think that for most people going to physical therapy school, sadly, that is a sufficient explanation and they're going to spend most of their careers chasing these hypothetical links between isolated muscles and people's perception of pain and injury. But I think for a lot of people, myself included, and I think a lot of people that have more of a, specifically people that were strength and conditioning coaches first and then became physical therapists. I think about myself, I think about Zach Couples, I think about Mike Camperini, again, people from that Bill Hartman lineage. We're, we're trained to look at movement first, to look at the quality of movement first. And then we layered the conventional physical therapy knowledge on top of that. And we saw that it wasn't really 
it wasn't really changing how people were moving. It wasn't really changing how people were feeling. It wasn't getting us outcomes. And so I think there's a lot of people that are starting to ask questions about whether or not the conventional way of doing things is the best thing. And I think that's why there was this big boom in PRI, you know, five or six years ago, because PRI is kind of so heretical in, in the face of conventional physical therapy and so different. And then people went really deep into PRI and realized that wasn't the end all be all. And now people have kind of like splintered into a lot of different directions, but I think your content resonates with a particular type of clinician that is looking for something different, something that ties the whole body together, something that respects athletic performance, uh, something that isn't so isolated and yet is a little bit maybe more approachable than some of the stuff Bill Hartman's putting out, uh, maybe more approachable than some of the stuff that PRI is putting out. So I think, you know, I, I find myself recommending your stuff to a lot of my colleagues that want to have these more in-depth biomechanical discussions, but don't want to get sucked into a particular three-letter acronym or four-letter acronym. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Thank you. Um, yeah. I've just... Because I because I actually looked at that question and thought, what, like what, it's it's easy easier to answer for someone from the outside. I think you know. I, I and and I also think that there is a lot of people in our profession currently that have amassed quite a following by doing certain things on social media by employing certain tactics that don't have a lot to do with biomechanical content. And like I said before, I just, you know, and this is why I wanted to have you on me and Michelle's podcast, because I believe in what you're doing. And I think you're one of the good ones and your, your content is uh, easy to understand. It's useful. It's different than what we're taught. And it's not really relying on, you know, memes or like, like you know, anything to kind of like just drum up a lot of views. And that's, I, I respect the way that you've built this over the past couple of years. Yeah. Thank you, man. That helps. That definitely helps. And um, I think my my answer is the big the biggest thing for anyone listening. Like, not I don't want it to seem like I'm saying I'm a success or anything like that. Like, it's just it's an Instagram number. Like, you know, it's it's that's that's what it is. Like followers and stuff. But at the same time, like you have to acknowledge that that gives you a platform to uh, spread your ideas more and possibly make more money and have a have a better business and all of these things but the biggest thing i think is consistency like over time consistency that's that's why i don't think it's a massive secret or anything like that it has it has grown really nicely for me and it's like consistency is the big thing i've posted like done stories at least or something every day for three or four years now easily and you know so consistency is important and then having i think having some kind of mixture of different different types of skills so like there's a lot of people a lot of people out there way smarter than me um way way smarter and maybe they can't communicate things very well or then vice versa there's people who communicate things like amazingly well but there's it's all it's all it's all cream and no cake there's nothing behind it like um and then all, all different things and then yeah and actually being some kind some way savvy and on social media um with regards to when you post and what you post and things like that but consistency is the biggest thing so for anyone for anyone listening who wants to wants to build anything like that that's 
if you because you learn the other things as you go with practice but if you're not consistent like if, if you're if you're if you think i'm not big enough so i'll so i can't post like how are you ever going to do that then yeah for so, sure yeah so all, yeah, thank all, you for your feedback all cream and no cake that's the first like irish saying that you've dropped in the hour and 10 minutes so i need i need like every five minutes i need like something that's distinctly irish also is the food i could have went with i could i could have went with all sizzle and no sausage there you go is the is, so is the food pyramid is the food pyramid in iron in ireland just some combination of uh, cream cake sausage and guinness it's kind of like a food rectangle uh, potatoes guinness and uh yeah, carrots, and that's probably about it, really. It sounds like a really nice environment for hypertrophy, you know? You just get really, really <laughs> jacked on potatoes, Guinness, and carrots. Or get fat. <laughs> and All right, man. Where, uh, where can people find out more about you and the products that you offer? Uh, they can just go on um, David Gray Rehab, Tim, on um, G-R-E-Y on Instagram. I think that's the best place, and... You will see me talking about products there if you're if you're interested. So uh, that's that's all I have to say, man. So thank you very very much for having me on. I really enjoyed the chat, and I always enjoy the chat, and I appreciate what you're doing. Um, and I really mean that. I really appreciate what you're doing, not just with the podcast, but everything you do. And I think I think you're. I, I respect you very very much as a coach and a, a therapist and a person as well. So keep keep pushing, man. Well, Michelle and I thank you for taking the time. I thank you for those very kind words. And, and, and Michelle, and Michelle, of course. Yep. And Michelle. And we'll uh, we'll have to have you on for season three. Yep. Looking forward to it, brother. Thank All you. Right, take care, man. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool, and that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.